Let's pray, then we're going to look at Exodus 19. Father, thank you for this time together. We live in this really unique time, Lord. Um, For 2,000 years, your church has probably lived in unique times. (laughs) The early church suffered greatly, Lord. We we can see that even in the early chapters of the New Testament. We know that it went through such persecution all the way into the third century. There was time of uh, reprieve for a little bit, but false teaching grew and trampled all over the church and tore it apart. Then the rise of the Roman Catholic Church began to tear and pull on the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How, How was one to get to heaven? How was one to get to God? Who had the authority and where did it lie? And that, oh, that put terrible pressure on the true church. Then the dark ages, Lord, it's almost impossible to find the church. We know it was there. We know you've always kept a remnant. And then came the, the great revolution of the church in a sense, Lord. As it began to stand up and speak of reform. Salvation must be through Christ. The word of God must hold the answers. And boy, did the church take a hit then. And then we follow the church through wars, civil and world wars, and awful atrocities that took place then. And so, Lord, we, we think we're in unique times, and yet your people have always lived in difficult times, and you have always seen them through. So, Lord, keep our eyes on you. Help us to know you better. Lord, today in your text, you're gonna show us how you come and make yourself known among sinful men. That's not an easy chore. You're holy and we're sinful, and so you are going to reveal yourself. So Lord, we pray we'd learn great things about your character, about the law. How do we handle the law today? Lord, these are truths that we need to learn and know. We ask that you would help guide us in your word today. We thank you for this church. We thank you for what you're doing here. We give you glory and credit for it. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get into Exodus 19 and 20, we begin to start to see the heart of the Old Testament revelation of God. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, God is beginning to reveal himself in a greater way. One we're going to see in chapter 19 here, he's actually going to come down onto a mountain, not just to Moses this time, but to the entire nation. And then he's going to write out on tablets 10 points of his law, a portion of his law, the centerpiece of it, to describe to man his character and who he is. And then he's going to give the fuller law to Moses over over the next months and time as Moses deals with him. So we're now getting to where we see the heart of the Old Testament revelation of God. Now think about this. He's rescued um, Israel from Egypt. He's freed them from slavery. He's overthrown their oppressors, and he's cast them into the sea. He's displayed great power all the way along, plagues and release of the nation out of Egypt. He split a sea. He split rocks and gave them water. He has manna delivered every morning, six six days a week, um, to them for food. And he's now beat one of their enemies, the Amalekites that have come up, and they we're not ready to fight. We're not a, a nation ready for war, and he defeated them. He has formalized a relationship between the nation and himself through Moses right now. Moses is the mediator. Remember we talked about this when we were introduced to Moses quite some time back in Exodus. He's a mediator. He's a type. So in a lot of ways, he represents or teaches us uh, uh, looking forward to the way Christ will mediate with us. Moses was a sinner and he needed Christ to die for him eventually, but he is a mediator and he's a type. So now, God has formalized this relationship with the nation. They've always been his people since uh, Genesis 12 where he promised Abraham he would have a seed. He's always been there, but now he's got them. They're in a hole, they're a group now, and he's got them before himself. And he's proving the nature of his bond between them. That's what he's doing. I am your God. I am your king is really the attitude that's coming across here. And it's very important 
the terms of a covenant are usually around the, the way a king has a relationship with his people. And so yeah, there's a lot of that terminology within the Old Testament. But there's a barrier. There's a, there's a barrier between God and man. And it's difficult. <laughs> Here, now I want you to think about this. We're gonna, we may not get through this text tonight, but this holy God, he's holy means absent of evil, absent of sin, purest to form, desires a relationship with sinful man. So how is he gonna do that? Just in a vision, Isaiah was not in the presence of God, but in that vision in Isaiah 6, he knew he was a dead man being in the presence of God. So here's God going to do something remarkable in Exodus 19. He's going to come down among his people. It's fascinating. We're going to see that today. Furthermore, we get into this Mosaic covenant. Um, and it's, it's often, the, the law is often portrayed as a, a cold bondage in a way, right? Boy, I'm sure glad I'm not under the law. We, we kind of look at it that way. But that's not how it was given. And I think these misconceptions about the law, they arise because they're taken out of historical context. I want you to think through this with me. We must always realize that the law um, followed the great exodus. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, first, Moses was not given the law and then told to go to Egypt and say, well, here's the law. Let the law let, let it set you free. That didn't happen, did it? He actually met with God at the burning bush. God said, go get my people. And what? Bring them right back to this spot. That's all Moses was told to do. I'll do the rest. I'll send plagues. I'll I'll take care of Pharaoh. I'll harden his heart. I'll bring the people out. He did not give him the law at the first time on Mount Sinai. And this is such an important thing to understand. And you begin to realize that the nation had already been freed by God's divine grace and mercy when they come to get the law. You understand that? They're already free in a, in a physical sense. So God did not send the law to free them or to save them. He sent the law so that they would enjoy, enjoy a relationship with a holy God. And so we look at that a little different sometimes. Now, the law is present in a context of a covenant. So here is our Lord. He's the great king. He tells us his people, he tells us that his people, um, he goes, look, I want, I want to live in a relationship with you. I'm a holy God. Um, I, I, cannot, I cannot be amongst sin. There's a way to me. There's a way to be by me. And so he reveals his own character through the law. Now, their obedience to the king is not done from, is not to be done like a slave fears a master. Their obedience to the law was to be done out of gratitude. Oh Lord, we were slaves and now we're free. Does that sound familiar? Right? And there's plenty of mercy and grace in the Old Testament. I think sometimes we get our mind like, you know, you break the law, you die. Well, that had been a case. They wouldn't have made it out of, you know, Sinai. <laughs> they don't even get to the border of the promised land, if that's the case. There's all kinds of mercy, and God shows that. Now you go, well, is the covenant national or is it individual? Meaning, is it for the entire nation? Is it for individual? Well, I think both. Because the Lord has a, a specific purpose for Israel, and, and it's beyond this national rescue of them, a national work that God did to bring this nation out of slavery, bring them out of Egypt. There's, there's something greater, right? He's going to bring salvation through that nation, and who would that be? A little louder. Starts with a J. There we go. Okay. The seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so the nation has a purpose. God is going to bring a Savior through that nation to die for that nation, for the, the believers, the true ones that will come to him by faith, and all those who profess the name of Christ. So he has a national purpose for them, but at the same sense, there was an enjoyment and blessing of the nation upon the truth of God's word, upon this law that he gave them, 
individually. And, and what we see as a nation, when they individually obey God and walk with them, they prosper. And then there comes a time where, particularly we see in the northern tribes later on, they stop nationally, individually, obeying God, and judgment comes. In fact, it comes about 125 years before the southern tribes go down. Now, we'll say, well, how does the law pertain to us today? Because we gotta, I wanna be careful here, because people start going, oh, Scott's saying we're gonna live by the law. Well, listen, the scriptures are very clear. Listen, the New Testament reminds us that we're no longer under the law. So we got it. We're trying to get some balance here. We want to understand, is the law still good for us to this day? We want to, we want to work on this. So what does it say? Well, you know these verses, Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of law. And that's very, very important. If you think you can get to God through the law, well, you can. You just have to be perfect. And when you were born, you blew it. Just being born, you lost it. Probably conception. So you cannot be declared righteous by the works of the law. We're justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from the law. The Bible's clear on that, right? Galatians 5.18. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. This is what Paul does so well in the Pauline epistles. He, he puts the law in spirit. Law, death, because no one can keep it. Spirit, life. So, by the Spirit of God, we now use the law to understand the character of God, and it benefits our life. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. I'll tell you, uh, when I was young, I had a CB radio in my truck. I'll tell you how long ago that was. Um, and, you know, 10-4, baby, you know, over and out. I'll never forget this verse because I, when I was starting to learn the depths of Christ, when I was back in that wrestling with sin age, um, I remember Romans 10-4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's a very important verse, 10-4. I got it. 10-4, <laughs> baby. Uh, you guys will probably start remembering that now, won't you? So Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, meaning you cannot get to God through the law and maintain perf- perfection because of our depravity. That's not the way God intended. Yet he has a role for the law. One, it distra- it, it's for us to know this character of this God who's so holy, who but, but designs and desires, excuse me, desires to live among us. Now, we must be careful to not misuse the law in, in either way. Dismiss it as, as not important or try to gain righteousness by it. The Mosaic law is, is no longer binding on those under the new covenant who are saved by Christ alone. It does, it does not mean that the law has no value though. And so the law has, has value because it showed God's people, it shows the world what God is like. What he's like. Because, but, because here's what happens, and you think about this, you young people are interacting with people who want God to, or the church, or someone to accept their lifestyle. You might be dealing with this more than some of us else. So what they do is they say, well, I gotta get rid of all of that stuff, all that law, all that character of God, because I have to create a God who fits within how I view he, he wants me to be. So what's happening in the church today worldwide is the Bible is not significant anymore because it's too, it too accurately describes God. So I have to change the verses or I have to get rid of them in order to make me feel I can live the way I want and be okay with God. It's very, very dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And you'll find yourself in hell when you mess with God, the God of the scriptures. He, the, so the law, the law is beautiful because it, it is an expression of his character. And, and this is what he's doing. This is why he comes down. Well, he's gonna come down in 19, if I ever get to it today. Um, he's gonna come down in 19. They're all gonna go, whoa, Moses, we're gonna die if you don't protect us. Because he's revealing himself to him. There's thunder and lightning and, you know, it's a mess, man. 
in the way they're looking at it. And they're going, you gotta help, you gotta help us, Moses. And then he comes down, and what happens out of that comes these tablets that say, I'm God. Here is who I am, and here's how you will come to me. And again, I mean, think, put this in New Testament perspective. The only way we come to him is through who? Who said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill it, so I can bring you to the Father. But we don't dismiss because we want to live in sin the character of God in the, in the character and the teaching of the law. If you get rid of the Old Testament, you get rid of the law, you'll never know the God who lives in heaven. That's why we teach the old book. Now, again, there's a redemptive theme going here, right? There's a redemptive, it's all flowing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't say, well, you know, I'm just gonna stay in the Pentateuch. You're gonna be in trouble. Because you're never gonna get to the one who can fulfill the law for you in how you can get to him. And you're always gonna fall short every time you're gonna fall short, fall short, fall short. Now, it's, an, it's important to understand in the context here that there's a great king, God, and he expects his royal subjects to live in a certain way before him, right? Like any king would. But this is a God. This is God. This is the great king, right? And because God is unchanging in nature, the law can teach us about his character and what he's like, and it also teaches us what we're like. Why does he have to say, thou shalt not steal? Because we're thieves, aren't we? Right? So the law says, Scott, you have a problem. It's a sin problem. <laughs> and when you match it up, you against the character of God, you fall short of his glory. So how are you going to get to his glory? You need somebody to get you there. See, the law has a beautiful role to teach us how much we need a savior. And that's why we look at it. Now let me give you an example. I doubt too many in here are coveting their neighbor's donkey. Because you're going to find that in the law. Don't cover, covet your neighbor's donkey. First of all, you have to have a neighbor who has a donkey. And then you have to really like donkeys. <laughs> if you've ever been around them, <laughs> my cowboy friend is laughing here, you he, he realize, why did God make this creature? <laughs> but anyway, so you probably, most of us in here are not covering our neighbor's donkey, but <laughs> we do covet, don't we? Ooh, covet's a tough one, isn't it? It's the last of the Ten Commandments because you can't see it. And he does get serious. He says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Ooh, that might be a bigger problem than the donkey. Cover your, covet your neighbor's car, his grass for you men, homes for women sometimes, the way somebody cares for another person. Wished my husband did that. or wish my wife did that. See, the law has this role to help us see, Scott, you are a wretch. You have no hope on yourself. You're a coveting, stealing liar. And you need a savior. <laughs> because you're matched up now against the character of God and you go, oh God, I'm a dead man. Just like when Isaiah looked in that vision, he said, I'm a dead man. I have unclean lips. I can't be in your presence. So the law does that for us. That's why we don't want to say, well, the Old Testament isn't important anymore. I've, you can't believe how many times I've been there and is teaching the Old Testament at some conference somewhere and people go, we just never teach of the Old Testament. You oh, just gave up half the Bible? And the beautiful Christological flow of the Bible, oh, it's just all going towards Jesus. One more. You say, well, Scott, I, okay, I'm working on coveting but I don't have any graven images. Really? <laughs> yeah, you probably don't have some little shaped something or other in your front living room that you bow down to, but I promise your flesh wars against the spirit for who's gonna sit on your heart. Isn't it? And so right off the bat, when we get into the Ten Commandments, probably not next time because I'm 
not getting out of my introduction here, but when we get there, you're going to say, oh my goodness, my heart often longs for everything but God. I need you, Lord Jesus. I need you to transform my thinking and my life because there's a war, there's a war raging between my flesh and the spirit of God and it's after the throne of my heart. So God desires for us to be content in him, content in his ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who could fulfill the law. He wants us to be content in him. And that's where our battle lies, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Am I content with the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I willing to die to self? That great verse that Jerry read there. I'm, I die to him. I died with Christ and I'm, and I'm no longer Scott. I'm, I'm, I'm in Christ now. I've died to that. That's, that's battle, isn't it? Left to ourselves, we don't desire him. And so that's the work of the Spirit in our life. And he teaches us now to strive to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And that's, and that's progressive sanctification. Now, it's vitally important that we see the difference between the law at Sinai and our holy position in Christ. You think about it, we now, us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that have been saved, have regenerated, made alive in Christ, we live under this new covenant or in the new covenant because of Christ's finished work. Now, think about this. We are not subject to a set of principles engraved on stone tablets any longer, but to the living example of those true principles that are found in Christ alone who lives within us. So he fulfills the law. We find life in him, and he causes us to stand in righteousness before his Father. So this is what we would call new covenant. We stand in the new covenant because he fulfilled the old one. The second had to be fulfilled so he could usher in the new one. So we don't live by the letter of the law, but by the living example of Christ. That's how, that's how we live. And he, and, he, and he tells us this over and over. He says, you're, you're my body. You're, you're my hands. You're my feet. You're my mouth. When people look at the church, they should see me. This is, what, this is how Jesus speaks. This is how the New Testament writes. And this is why he says, why, can, you know, why does the hand say, well, I'm not the foot, and so forth. He says, that's nonsense. You're the body of Christ. You all make me up. When, when they see you, they should be seeing me. And, and think about that. That's, that's all of the church looks like Christ, and then individually we make up the person of Christ. And it's a fascinating parallel that goes along here. And so we live by his example and through his word to guide us and inspire us as believers to love and obey from heartfelt worship. Oh, I remember that hurdle as a young person learning to see the glory of Christ. And I mentioned this at the start and finally finding victory over sin. And, and all the check systems I had and all the accountability that you can go through, all of that will fail you till you see his beauty. And you see him for what he did, that he, he accomplished all that we could not accomplish. And I, I am fine life and eternity in him. And then you start, by God's grace, winning battles. Now, that's the section we're moving into. And I want to, as we go through and teach the law and understand what God was doing at Sinai, and then into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land, I want you to understand that so you don't get lost in that. But here in Exodus 19, there's a beautiful event that's taking place. And we see this event as they arrive before this place where the great king is going to reveal himself. The great king is coming to his people for the first time. Everything has been through Moses. And there's been a pillar and, and cloud, so forth, and that moving along. But for the first time, the nation is now going to hear the voice of God. They've been hearing it through Moses, but... Now they're going to do it, and so he's going to reveal himself. The king is coming. And so there's preparation for the king in this passage. And the Israelites, whom, whom God freed from slavery, have arrived now in our text. They've arrived to Mount Sinai, right where Moses was. He had his father-in-law sheep there. He's grazing along, and this bush starts burning and won't burn up, and God reveals himself to Moses. He's right back there now with millions of people in tow. It's fascinating. 
And Moses, I think, is eager but cautious to approach God and, and, and receive the basic requirements that the king has for this covenant. And the nation is there, and they're, they're going to receive these terms, and then they're going to approve them and tell God that, yes, we'll do this. Moses is going to be given all kinds of details of preparation in order for the king to come down into their presence. So let's look at this. I, we won't get terribly far, and we may have to come back and finish this. But uh, I thought that was important. I want you to understand that biblical theology that flows through this and how we handle the law. Number one, meeting God should be our greatest desire. Verses one and two in, in Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And when they had, left, when they had set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Well, when the Lord first met with Moses, he gave him a promise, and it goes back, and I've already mentioned this, to Exodus chapter three, verse 12. He says, certainly I will be with you. This shall be a sign to you, you that I have sent you. you when, uh, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I think that's so fascinating. He's right back where he started. A lot of times that's probably not good. <laughs> you go in life, I'm right back where I started. Um, but in this case, it's a really good thing. This is, was the goal. And, and I, what I want you to understand is there's a greater goal to be with God than the promised land. And, and let, me, let me help give us some course correction in our thinking sometimes. Sometimes we as Christians go, I can't wait to go to heaven. Heaven, 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 heaven. Yeah, heaven's gonna be phenomenal. But I'm telling you, the God of heaven is what you want to see. That's what we're after. And the danger and what we'll see that the nation of Israel struggles with is their desire becomes greater for the promised land than from, for God. And that, can, and that can happen to our life. And a promised land without God is not much of a promise or a land. You don't want to go to heaven where there's not a God there. In fact, there is no heaven where there's no God. He, he, he is the centerpiece, and so that's who he, he, he wants you to long for him. And, and that's what he wanted out of the nation of Israel, and they failed miserably. They failed miserably, and we'll see that as we go on. But the goal was for them to long after him, and that's the goal for us. The true reward at the end of this life is to be in the presence of a triune God, to stand there in awe of him or, or fall in, on your face before him or kneel or dance or whatever happens at that point because we don't know what that looks like. But that, that's the goal is to be in his presence. And the glorious streets of gold and the mansions and all the th stuff the Bible speaks of that's are hard to get our mind around are all, all gravy, <laughs> gravy to the stake of, of being with Christ. Now, what took place over the last three months is nothing short of miraculous, isn't it? He rescues the people where he talked about destroyed enemies, brought them there, fed them, watered them, gave them plurality of leadership, and here they are now. And I think the idea of verse one is to remind us that it's been three months. And again, um, the Hebrew word is, talks about new moons versus like our month. That's why your Easter gets moved around all the time because <laughs> Hebrew calendar goes off the new moons. Um, so, but, but it's very close to three months they have been since they left Egypt, and they've seen all kinds of stuff God has done for them. Now in verse two, I, I don't think Rephidim is too far from Sinai, and I mentioned this, I think God provided water for them in many ways. You're gonna see in this text where they have to clean all their clothes. Well, I mean, we had four boys, two adults, you know, we burned through several wash machines, you know, raising the kids. Can you imagine? Everybody had to be cleansed before they went to the edge of the mountain. Everybody. Beasts, people, kids. And you live in the desert. <laughs> so, so God, he's meeting their needs spectacularly, right? This, this word wilderness means rough grazing. <laughs> yeah, I hope your camel's like dirt because there's not much out there. So God has to provide for this group of people out there um, and this means he's continually meeting their needs, both humans and livestock. Now, this gathering here in the wilderness would, would, also, be, uh, would also give them protection. And I got to think about this as I was working on this. Well, who else is out there? Well, you might have some bands of marauders here and there and a, 
a few camel trains going through. But most people aren't sitting out in the middle of the wilderness. So God, he knows where they need to need. He brings them out into this wilderness where he can protect them and then meet their needs. He gives them water and food every day. And without God's provision, they just would not have survived there. So clearly God is arranging this incredible event. He's, he's now ready to come down among the people. Second thought. Moses intercedes for God's people and starts his mountain climbing career. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, he's about 80, which is midlife, so he's in his 40s for our, our kind of frame, time frame. Mountain climbing, because the Bible says, and I lost count, I did this one time years ago, probably Bible school or something. I counted how many times he went up and down the mountain. I know it's t- plus 25. There's four of them in this text alone in 19, he goes up and down the mountain. This guy goes up and down the mountain like there's no tomorrow. He's probably the best in shape 40-year-old you've ever been around. He, and, and, and look, he knows this area. He grazed his father-in-law's sheep here. Um, and there's mountains in the area. Nobody knows where this Mount Sinai is. And believe me, they've looked. And if they could, they'd build a church on top of it and go and worship it somehow. Um, but it's in the regions they're pretty sure in these areas, there's mountain ranges that are 5,000 foot in this area. And there's good grazing up there. In fact, you get out of that salt ground on the bottom where grass isn't growing, you get up on those hills, and, and that's where he was, right? He had his father-in-law's sheep, and he was grazing them in there where God revealed himself at the burning bush. And so doubtlessly, it's, there's some grazing that's up there. So you don't think of, I think when we think mountain, you think like there's this little peak, and he just climbs up it and sits on top of it and meets God. You know, this is probably like normal mountains, and there's meadows and pastures and all that stuff going up on there. But God's going to be on top of that, and he wants the mountain cleared when he comes. So Moses has got to be somewhat fit. He's a mountain climber. I also believe Moses was encouraged to go up and see God because his mission he might have thought was complete. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, because God said, go get my people and bring them back here. There wasn't a whole lot about the promised land. There's a little bit in there, but he said, Moses, go get my people and bring them back here and worship me here. And so maybe Moses is going, hey, I got done. Glad I survived that. I don't know, but, but it, it seems when you study the text, that was the goal. Go get my people and come back here. Now, doubtlessly, Moses loved God, and he was looking forward to what he had next, but you know, anytime you complete something, it's a good thing, right? Go get my people and come back here. So I think there's, like, he's looking forward to going up on the mountain, talk to God. I, okay, you sent me there. Whoa, that was wild. Ten plagues and Pharaoh chasing us and Red Seas and... <laughs> Thanks, Lord. But yet he's not done. Look at verse three with me. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him, called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall sell to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel will hold right there. Notice Moses' position isn't he is not done with him. He is now God's royal. We're speaking about a king here. He's God's royal ambassador. So the king has instruction for his people, and Moses is the royal ambassador. He's the royal proclaimer. He's going to speak for God. This is what God has said. Look at verse 4. You yourself have seen what I did in Egypt and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now clearly God does not want his people to forget his great works. Brothers and sisters, how often do we forget in the middle of a trial, in the middle of difficulties, the great work of God. I promise you, we would sin way less if we would not forget Christ hanging on a cross and, and absolving, taking our punishment that was due us. So there's a constant reminder, and I think that's really good as we study the Old Testament, because God's constantly reminded them how he took them out of slavery. How many songs do we sing that te- teach that our, sh- our chains are gone? I mean, we sing this constantly, don't we? So the Bible's always reminding us not to forget that. So there's three things in this verse four. Look at them, they're very easy to see. There's a whole sermon right here in verse four. Remember what I did for you in Egypt. This is the first thing. Don't forget how I rescued you. And then next, look what he does. How I carried you on eagle's wings. Whoa, well, what does that mean? What, a, what an amazing illustration. And you can see why um, Tolkien and, and, mine's going blank, some of these guys write, um, 
when you see Lord of the Rings and watch that or read the books or so forth, often, the, remember the, we, the eagles show up and carry them away and stuff. And those writers are striving to depict how God cares for his chosen people in there. But it, I think it's fascinating how I carried you on eagles' wings. It certainly has to be metaphoric because we did not see eagles in Egypt. But yet, God's word talks about this all the time. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, just let me read this to you really quickly because I'm running late here. Um, this is a recount of what God has done. Listen to what Moses writes. This is just before he dies and the people go into the land. He says, he found him in a desert, speaking about um, the nation, and in a howling waste of wilderness, speaking about their spiritual condition. He encircled them and he cared for them and he guarded him as a pupil of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. And then, of course, you know Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 through 31. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary and tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks, might, he might increase his power. Though, you, uh, though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength, and they will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not get weary, and they will walk and not become weary. And, and so we find this, and there's several other places that we come across this, and so it's a symbol that God sweeps down at the most difficult times of our life, and he grabs us within those pinion, those feathers, and he, and he takes care of us and brings us through the most difficult time. And he says, Moses, don't let them forget what I did. Don't let them forget how I rescued them and how tender I was. And then third, notice he says, I brought you to myself. I sat and wept over that point today. And I thought, oh God, I would have never come to you if you did not come and get me. It's so true, isn't it? We, we do not come to God on our own. We, we can't. There's nothing in us that would desire the, the righteousness of God. He comes and gets us, and, and I think these principles are so crystal-centric, right? They're all pointing towards the finished work of Christ, but he says, don't let them forget, I brought you to myself. And Moses is probably going, that's right. You brought me right back here. And so these are the message that Moses, this great royal communicator for God, is supposed to tell these people and to remind himself. And I doubtless he had to remind himself of this when things got tough. And what an amazing set of circumstances and event. God weaved this massive nation through all these problems and brought him to himself. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, enjoyment of this covenant was conditioned upon obedience at this point, right? I've rescued you, I've saved you. Now, if to enjoy that rescued position, I am the king, you are my subjects. By grace, I brought you here. Now, by grace, live for me. Enjoy the privilege of having me as your king is what God is saying here. And there's an obedience that is to be recognized and worshiped for what God has done for them. But think about this. Those that are in the new covenant, those who are Christians right now, we put our faith that Jesus alone saves us. We have graciously been bought to God not by our own works. And, and, then, and then think about what he does. He gives us the spirit of God that produces the fruit of the to show us we're saved. Isn't that incredible? And listen, friend, if, you're, if you are fruitless in your life, there's two things that are happening. One, you've quenched the Spirit of God. You've run him into some closet. You may let him out for an hour and a half, depending on how long Scott goes on Sunday, um, for a little bit. And, you've, and then you run him back into the closet so you can live the way you want, and boy, that's not going to give you a lot of assurance. Or there is no spirit. Thus, there's no fruit. 
So what God has done is says, and people get all upset about when we teach that we should obey God. But that's what the Bible teaches, right? He rescued us. He saved us. We, get, we, we constantly have pressure as elders and people coming want us to justify something they're doing. And, and so when we bring them to the scriptures, they often get mad at us. Well, don't get mad at us. This is what the Bible says. How can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Don't you know that we, Christ died, we died? And so, there, now look, we're not talking about perfection, we're talking about direction. Did you catch that? We're not talking about perfection, we're talking about direction. So, so yes, we're gonna fail. Your pastor fails, he sins, and, and but he has short accounts, and he rises back up by God's grace and begins to live again. And, you, and so you're, you're moving, you're, you're conforming to the image of the Lord versus finding yourself fruitless. And so listen, he says, look, if you obey my voice and keep my covenants, you'll be of my possession. Now look, they, were, they had to come to God by faith, didn't they? And Israel here is known as a special possession of God. And so is the church, right? We're, to, we're told we're a special pos- a possession of God. Look at verse six. And you shall be, a, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Remember, God and Moses are still talking on the mountain at this point. And that's what we are, right? God has let us, the church, the new covenant people, be a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God for his own possession. And so look, he goes, go down and tell them. Obey the king. (laughs) Obey the king. Is it hard? Because we live in a republic or wish we lived in a republic um, in a democratic process when most of all time has been under a king have you ever thought about that now I certainly don't want to change America's constitution I'm very glad to live in America but most of the world's lived under a king for most of the time now you give us the right king the king of kings, we'll throw this republic away in a hurry, won't we? Because he'll judge perfectly and rule perfectly and we won't have any problems. But he says to them, look, you obey me and, and you will have, because he says you'll be priest to me, that means you'll have, you'll have direct access to me all the time. You can come into my residence where I am at. And see, that's what he does for us as, as saved sinners, right? We now have direct access to him. Let me try to get through one more point here. Three, God's people are always challenged to count the cost of following him. Look at verse seven and eight. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now here's Moses, he's conveying this great message to the people just like God told him to. And he conveys this great message of God's people that, they're, that they are to be consumed with this king, this great God who brought them out of Egypt, who rescued them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. And that should change your life and you should want to, desire to obey the king. And so the elders of the people, most likely because it was impossible to speak to that many millions of people, um, they're represented here, most likely, and they get into this large gathering, they say, yes, we will. Now notice the word set before you. It's an interesting word in verse seven. The things set before you. It means, the Hebrew word means that you give careful consideration to what you, how you're gonna answer this. <laughs> give careful consideration to this. This was not to be taken lightly, and even under the new covenant, the Bible says, don't you know that you take up your cross and follow me? Crosses mean death. Death to me. Life in him. So Scott no longer lives, but he now lives in Christ, Galatians 2.20. So so there's, there's this walking with Christ. There's a desire, right? And we deny ourselves. We lay down our earthly motives and desires as best we can through his strength. We're gonna struggle with that from time to time. But, but we want that pleasure of obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. There's such great pleasure in obeying Christ. That's where your joy comes from. Joy and obedience are always tied together. Disobedience and sorrow always go together. 
Maybe not right away. Some disobedience is pretty fun for a little while, but eventually it creates great sorrow because there's always consequences with sin. That's the way it is. Obedience and joy always go together in the scriptures. Now, notice what they say. All that the Father has spoken, we will do. So Moses responds by taking this message back to the Lord. Well, this is what they said, Lord. They said they're going to do this. Well, this isn't the last time they do this. Right before Moses dies and right before they go in the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 27, you know this passage. He, the, Moses splits the nation, puts six tribes on garrison and six tribes on Mount Ebal. And then they do the blessing and cursing thing back and forth. You remember that? They shout out the blessings and they shout out the cursings back and forth. And then they say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And they did for a generation or so almost. And then they fell apart. So this wasn't the first time. And certainly it's hard to understand the level of commitment to a law they had not had yet. But I think that's why he's asking for it now. Because he says he does not want them to bow down to some tablets. He wants them to obey the king. And and that's where we get in trouble, isn't it? We got our little list out. We go, Lord, according to my list, I'm doing pretty good. We're not thinking about a great God who's a holy God who now has invaded this sinner and, and through his son caused me righteous so he can have this relationship with me. We're not obeying because of that. We're obeying because I got my checklist and I think I'm doing pretty good. And we fall into legalism. And then we start looking because if you have a checklist, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. And see how the pride works into there. And all of a sudden, the king's not in the picture anymore. It's all about me, what I've accomplished. And of course, that works its way into the church. And now you're hem lengths and hair lengths and, you know, and where you sit and where you don't sit and, you know, color of the carpet. And it just goes on and on. Now, we know that the nation will fall into great disobedience, right? Because we've read the book. And God's grace will repeatedly be exercised for this nation until they completely reject him. We'll see in numbers when we get there that he'll say 10 times you have rebelled against me. And, and he's so gracious to them and he gives them the land and he takes them in and he, and he continues to be gracious. But it, I think this is such an important point when you share the Lord Jesus Christ with somebody, let them know that following Jesus is difficult. Not because Jesus is difficult, because we're difficult. And that dying to self is really saying, God, I cannot do this on my own. And you'll notice every time they make these great shoutings to the God, they, they are never accomplished by, oh God, we can't do this on our own. Oh God, we can do this. Give us that land, we'll do this. And in the end, there's great failure. Five minutes, number four. Holy God is about to descend on sinful man. We're not gonna get through this, but we're gonna start on it. Now, think about this. This holy God we've already talked about, he's gonna come now and dwell, so this is an amazing thing that starts to happen. Look at verse nine. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm come to you in a thick cloud, so the people may hear when I speak with you. Hmm. And, may, and they may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So this thick cloud, it's probably this cloud and pillar that's been leading them around, uh, most likely some form of that. And it settles down on this mountain. And there's a concealment still here. The full divine heavenly mass, uh, majesty of God is, is, is illustrated in this cloud, but it's still somewhat concealed. But notice that the people can hear the Lord now speak to Moses. See, all it's been, all it's been before is Moses saying, well, I talked to God and this is what he said. Well, now they're hearing, oh, this God really does talk to Moses. And I've been grumbling against him. So he's authenticating Moses' leadership, and that's going to be important in the future because there's a group of people that are going to try to rebel against him, right? So now things are starting to get serious. The Lord is now coming down, right? Verse, 11, uh, verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. And on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, Anytime a king arrives, 
to be in presence with his people, they make themselves ready, right? If the President of the United States was going to pull up to your yard tomorrow, I imagine you're going to be out there with a headlamp on today getting it ready, aren't you? You know, and uh, it's always kind of fun to be a pastor and just come knock on somebody's door, and all of a sudden you hear things just scrambling. You can hear some little kid, it's the pastor, <laughs> and man, there's dishes going, and it's pretty crazy. I'm going, please don't do that for me. <laughs> well, the Lord is coming, the king is coming, and, 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 and so there's this consecration that starts to happen. It means, the word means to set apart, to make holy, and, and, and though the actions were outward, they're really, it's a symbol that needs to happen inwardly. The, the presence of the king is here. Are we right with him? Are we ready to stand before him? Are we living a lie? And notice some of the stuff that goes off. They're fencing off the, the mountain. They're, they're cleansing the entire nation. There's this huge bath going on. They're washing clothes, and they have two days to get this done, and the third day he's coming. Look at verse 12. And you shall set a boundary of the people all around saying beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death no hands shall touch him but he shall surely be stoned or shot though whether beast or man he shall not live and when the ram's horn sounds and a long blast they shall come up to the mountain so Moses went down from the mountain to the people remember he's been up and down a couple times already and consecrate the people and they wash their garment and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, just as God's presence was in the burning bush and it made that ground holy, now, because God's presence is on this mountain, it makes this mountain holy. The mountain is not holy. The bush was not holy. It's holy because God's there. That's why the ground is holy. Take your shoes off or don't come near it. So clearly there's this tension between the, the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. You know, he's got to get down there. And so this is all... It looks outward, but it's really speaking of something deeper, isn't it? You've got to be clean to be in my presence. Mm, that's a great statement, isn't it? Do you know if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're clean and pure and you can stand in his presence? And if you were to die tonight, you would instantly go be in his presence because you're clean by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, all this is pointing forward to that, isn't it? Moses is the advocate. Moses is the mediator. Moses is revealing all this. Moses is bringing the people to the God. He's that type, isn't he? And being clean before God, and when I read this verse, I wrote in my notes, well, here's your first social distancing. Man and God. Put a fence up. Don't let them close to me. No man will touch them, but they'll die of a stone or an arrow. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at verse 13. Here we see that there's no exceptions for the death penalty. It doesn't matter. You can't, you can't come in that area. I am here. This command, these commands and preparation would have taken place during that three days. And, and only when a ram's horn is blown is the nation able to come near the mountain. So the horn is like all clear. <laughs> God's left the mountain. <laughs> um, but verses 14 and 15, the direction of the Lord are carried out and and even sexual relationships are to be held off. And uh, Leviticus 15 in the law uh, deals with that a little more. Last point five, the overwhelming presence of the almighty king. What will it be like when we see God? Brian and I had a professor at our last seminary, um, Cornerstone Seminary, his name was John Carson. John was, he was a great man. Uh, he was a great pastor and great friend. And, uh, he died of a, of a brain tumor, just, just almost like Steve, our, other, our president, had just a year behind him. And I remember his funeral to this day, and I remember John telling me, he says, I have songs picked out for my funeral already. So, you know, as a pastor that someday will, I'll probably be buried as well, and, and I have my songs picked out. I was wondering what he picked out. John was a powerful preacher. He, he, did, he boy, he dealt with sin, but he loved you to death. I mean, he was just, John was an amazing man. So at his funeral, the song that they said he wanted, everybody's kind of leaning in, especially all of us who were his students or worked with him. And the song he picked was, I Can Only Imagine. Now, John was a, a tremendous theologian. And, and when this song came out, I know there was people in our camp that kind of go, Ooh, you know. But listen to the words of it. I can only imagine what it'll be like when I walk by your side. 
I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine when that day comes, when I find myself standing in the sun. S-O-N. I can only imagine when all I will do is forever, forever worship you. You know, I led this text today, and I just, I'm out of time and I've got to close, and I began to get into this section where the Lord begins to come down on this mountain. And it's just phenomenal. Uh, about that time, my neighbor Rick, he was out mowing his lawn, and I'm in my office, and I can see him out there, and I'm going, Rick, you're getting hit by a lightning bolt because this storm's rolling in. Rick's trying to get his lawn done like us guys do, right? We don't want to leave it undone. <laughs> and, and, and this lightning's happening, it's flashing, and I'm reading verse 16. Right? Verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning and there was thunder and lightning and flashes and thick clouds upon the mountain and and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. I was trembling for you. (laughs) I told him him at dinner today, I said, if I had to give you mouth to mouth, you're probably going to (laughs) die. That's what guys do, right, you know? No, I would probably do it, Rick. But I thought about this. I said, wow, this, this is just this little view of God. It's small compared to what he really is because he isn't able to totally unveil himself yet, but he will. And, and so he comes down and the place is going crazy and, the, and there's this loud trump and it's different than this ram's horn. The ram horn means all clear, but this loud trump that continues, it's a continuing, getting louder and louder and louder, is summoning people to the presence of God. Doesn't the Bible talk about that there's another Trump coming someday? Not the current president. There's going to be a trumpet blast. And it's telling you that the presence of God is coming. And the Bible says they trembled. This describes the intensity of the Lord coming among his people. Trembled means they were physically shaken. Look at verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. We're going to see in verse 20. They said, you go before us. Because <laughs> we're going to pick up the narrative. It, it stops and it has the Ten Commandments and it picks up the narrative. And they're going, you go, Moses. You've been talking to this guy. I mean, they were afraid. But Moses says, come on, you've got to meet the one who sent me. And look, you and I share the gospel with people. And when you get people around God in the Bible, they start trembling sometimes. But you know him, and you got to bring people to him. Bring them. Bring them to people. And they'll be scared at times when you start really unveiling what, our, what we're really like, our sin, and why we need a Savior. And they'll tremble, but you bring them to meet God. There, stand at the foot of the mountain and say, there he is. There's, there's the one who died for us. There's the one who planned my salvation from the foundations of the world. He can do it for you. He can set you free from your sins. You just see Moses being this this wonderful interceder for us. And I believe Moses could have led the people to God, but they were afraid, and they they had to trust him. And, And so Moses says, look, I want you to see and know the God I know. They wouldn't have come on their own. 18 and 19 now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it with fire and the smoke ascended and the smoke, it was like a smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently and then the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And we gotta quit because we're way over time. This God is coming down to his people and they're still not gonna believe him. Right? And yet some will. He has a remnant and he'll open their eyes and they'll believe. And that was us, Lord. Father, thank you for this time, this word. We've gone late. And thank you for our children's workers who have loved on our children down the hall and caring for them. Bless them, Lord. But thank you for this time in the word. Where this is the God that our Lord Jesus Christ brings us to. And 
And Lord, we are not like these people. We do not tremble in your presence anymore. Your spirit has given us a reverential fear for you, an awe, a love. We, in fact, we now call you Abba, Father. In a sense, the word tells us to climb into your lap and speak with you because we have now the right to be in your presence because Jesus Christ died for us. And yet, God, this text teaches us how big and glorious and awesome you are. And so let us not miss that either. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for fulfilling the law. We're not even there yet, but we know we can't keep it. So thank you for fulfilling that for us and bringing us to your Father. Lord, bless these people here tonight, those listening online. Pray that you would give us strength, Lord, to walk with you because you are glorious. Let that be our motivation. In Jesus' name, amen.